0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we delve into unrest in Chile, talk about upcoming events in the city this fall, and discuss how artists are helping our communities during the pandemic. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and debut music from Chicago's top local artists. It's the 250th episode of the Lumpin' Week in Review. Whew! Thanks for all your support. Bad at Sports spoke to Tiger Strikes Asteroids, Teresa Silva and Holly Cahill, about collective art action, the network, and their new group show, It Feels Like the First Time. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m.
1: Holly and Teresa Silva, both great artists who've lived in town for a long time and are here today to talk about something called Tiger Strikes Asteroid, which could be a new hipster beer. I don't know. what. What's Tiger Strikes Asteroid?
2: um so yes it would be a great name for a beer um and also an art gallery or a network of artists artists run spaces um that are independently operated but also part of a network uh yeah that's that's who we are
1: okay so Chicago's. Uh, so <clears throat> i was obviously kidding uh chicago strikes asteroid is uh is a national network of galleries which are Operate as independent artist run centers. I, and I know that Chicago's has recently, or I, I, recently to me, because we've been in lockdown for, you know, almost two years, uh, moved to Mana Contemporary. And I have many questions. So how, TSA, what is the Chicago, how does the Chicago iteration of TSA work? And how does that work with the network?
3: a lot of questions.
1: so many questions. It's weird. I know. Where 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 should should we start? start? (laughs) Who should start
3: start first? Um, Well, Chicago started in 2016 um, and Holly and I are one of the um, original members from that era and um, it's run by a group of artists. I should clarify I'm not an artist. I'm a writer and a curator. I don't make things um so I'm one of the few people in the collective that is not an artist but we take turns curating programs or programming for the space so I really maybe curate every year and a half in the space but we mutually support one another with our creative endeavors um and I think you know it's a community it's a creative outlet and I think um you know, we fall into this network in the sense that we depend on one another in terms of resources, but we also um, get to problem solve and, and do fun things together like this exhibition. So uh, it's a very convoluted way, but I have never understood TSA in a straightforward manner either. So, <laughs> Holly, does That's that why sound I'm true? I'm so glad that Holly is our director of TSA Chicago because I would not be a good director. <laughs>
2: Oh, so untrue. No, I think you'd be fabulous. And I I still hope that you will take it on with me at some point. Um, Holly, you're so
1: committed to TSA. You're there right now. You were like, well, we're going to talk about TSA. I better be in the space.
2: Yeah, it's it's sort of hilarious. It it wasn't really planned, but my studio is right downstairs and my neighbors are musicians. So the sound gets really loud in the space and um, I've had problems before. So I just like... You know, I'll just go to TSA. It'll be fine.
4: So, can you uh, talk to us, and by us, I mean all of Chicago and the international reach that this will someday have about the exhibition that's up right now? We,
2: that would be a pleasure. Um, yeah. So, the the exhibition now that's at Mana is called "It Feels Like the First Time." Um, it it's including all of our members across. All of the five locations that we have um, galleries in. So Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, Greenville, and Chicago. And it was open to everyone that wanted to be part of the exhibition. Um, so we didn't exclude anyone. Um, we invited everyone to participate. And um, there were a few people that didn't, but the majority, um, this group of 46 artists, um, did. And um, it it kind of came about through a partnership with Mana Contemporary. So they reached out to us about doing a member show and we were just, we were thrilled with the opportunity. Um, For one, it's been something that we've sort of dreamed about for a long time, uh, putting this exhibition or an exhibition like this together of all the members. And um, two, it's the space that Mana has, these huge galleries could actually accommodate um, and not only that, they actually invited us to think about the building um, as a larger site for the exhibition. So we have uh, two murals that are outside the gallery space and we've had a selection of videos that are on view outside the elevator on the first floor. So it's, it's been a really, yeah, a really fun project to put together and really start to like look at all these different practices of artists um, that are working across the country and, and kind of how they share concerns.
4: And what is the, what is the kind of communication like between the different organizations, uh, the different instantiations of Tiger Strikes Asteroid as it exists nationally in this sort of diffuse network? Um, what sort of communication happens in the, in other times when there's not organizing towards a single show?
2: Yeah, so we use Slack. Um, We have channels on Slack uh, where we can delineate different projects we're working on um, together or either locally or through the network. Um, So we we have different committees. Um, For example, one project that we're working on coming up is called Five by Five, and it's an exchange with artist-run spaces in Berlin. So each TSA location is kind of pairing with the Berlin Gallery and we're doing exhibitions on both ends, and our cities um, we're hosting them, and they're hosting us in Berlin. So that's a, a kind of network project. That's an international exchange, and there's a committee that would that would meet solely about that project. Um, the directors also meet uh, every month, and um, we kind of check in with each location to see you know, how things are going, what what's coming up. Um, And, you know, share ideas and work on kind of network projects that way. And then we can communicate to the local members kind of through those conversations.
1: So how many projects does TSA Chicago do a year? And how many of them are sort of informed by the network? And how many of them are informed by the local membership?
2: I think we have like about six to seven. Would you say, Teresa, exhibitions a year?
3: Yeah, that's what we do, six to seven, and then it's hard to say now because of this thing called coronavirus. But I think we were doing about one or two, maybe network-informed projects. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have a full schedule. We don't stop.
2: Yeah, yeah, and really, our exhibitions are you know curated by our members or guest curated. Um, we recently had a, sh- a solo show, of Victoria Martinez's work, and that was through um, a network project, an artist-run artist exchange. Um, you know, that was a national kind of effort and Transmitter from New York came, um, they curated the show, a- Ava from Transmitter, a- Ava Mayabel Davis um, curated Victoria's work and we, we hosted it. So that was an example of kind of a recent Um, network initiative, but um, the majority of our shows are initiated through the membership.
4: I'm curious also, I mean, we'll get into, I think, a lot of the sort of uh, the minute details of how TSA works. I think it's a really interesting model to have something that is built both on the kind of like internal um, politics and communities of different spaces and then having that be something that is, I don't know, franchise is not the right word, but something in which there is like a sort of like um, a more official level of, of like discursive, um, I don't know, yeah, network informed thinking between the different spaces. Um, but I want to hear more about the the show that's up right now. And I guess I'm also curious a little bit is what are some of the sort of like common threads that were found between all of these different Artists, or how you were sort of like thinking about um, positioning these 46 different artists in one space and having TSA, of course, be the sort of the, the common threads that um, bind them. But I'm sure there's also other things. I'm just sort of curious in terms of like exhibition thinking, how you were putting those all together.
3: Yeah, I think um, I can maybe start with the process a little bit and then Holly, you can pick up a little bit with it. Um, you know, when we were invited to to do this show on the fifth floor, um, it was a dream come true for us because, as Holly mentioned before, it was something that we as a network had not done before, um, is to showcase the work by all artists in the network, um, largely because of space. And here was this invitation. Um, so, you know, Holly, you and I with, I think it was Molly and Sarah at the time had a conversation and very excited about this one in a lifetime opportunity, but then how do you do this with 50 members across five cities during a pandemic? And, um, you know, I think what was most exciting though, and I think the energy for me was that, you know, I know members, but maybe more in in an administrative role, which is the interesting thing. Um, And this was an opportunity to get to know them in their individual studio practice and what are their creative interests. So, you know, Holly, you and I decided to really allow the artists to take the lead. Um, Wasn't really possible to do studio visits with everyone, so um, you know, we got a sense of what the space looked like, um, what could be shown there, and then asked artists to give us, you know, three works that they were very excited about for Holly and I to consider, and we reviewed those together. Uh, went back and forth. with The artist selected the work, and then from there, reassessed and kind of looked at some of these conversations that came out of the works that we selected um, between the artists. I think there was a couple of rules that we had. <laughs> one is we didn't want to have a segregated show, so you didn't have like one room or one wall of all LA artists or Chicago.
0: Chuck Merz talked with Brie Busk about the unrest in Chile. Why did the population there suddenly revolt against their government, and what is the meaning of this for the future? This Is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m.
5: You write that on July 5th, after a tumultuous morning, both inside and outside the former National Congress building, the inaugural meeting of Chile's Constitutional Convention carried out its first act, electing Elisa Lancone. Antileo as its president. Lancone, an indigenous delegate representing the Mapuche people, made a history as she addressed the assembly, first in her, indigenous, in her native tongue and later in Spanish. What is the significance for people here in the United States who don't understand that? What is the significance of the per- president of the convention, the first to speak, being Mapuche, delivering the first speech in their native tongue before doing so in Spanish? What kind of message? Does that send, or what kind of message was that intended to send to the public when it comes to what they can expect with the convention and the constitution it will create?
6: Well, I would say that the intended message is that uh, the indigenous peoples of this territory were not going to be sidelined in this process. In the current constitution, as you mentioned, written uh, under the Pinochet dictatorship, Uh, Indigenous peoples aren't even mentioned, let alone their rights uh, being protected in any way. So, uh, Longkon, in many aspects of her speech and in her choice to speak in her first language, it was an affirmation of what she and others wanted to see in this uh, process, that we would be developing a new constitution in which Native peoples would not only receive recognition, but Uh, protection of their rights and ability to have language rights, for example. And Lung has been an advocate specifically of language rights, meaning that Indigenous people should be able to speak their first language, not only in the privacy of their homes, but in all public areas. And that topic has been defended in the constitutional process thus far with uh, native delegates demanding to be able to speak in their first language and not have to speak in Spanish if that is not their preference.
5: So how democratic was the delegation election process, how democratic was the process in electing the president? Because I could see how the opposition would make claims, as the opposition often does, that this was not done in a democratic way, that somehow the vote totals weren't correct, somehow this was corrupt in some way. So how democratic was the, uh, the delegation election process?
6: Ooh, that's a deep question. I would say that it's not as democratic as anyone wants it to be in general. This is not the constitutional process that was requested in the revolt, right? In the context of the uprising, we wanted a constituent assembly from below. And what we got was a compromise offered by uh, a desperate establishment. And within that process, we have pushed for, the highest level of democracy and democratic practices possible, but we have found many walls. I would say the election is possible, right? The transparent voting of the delegates within the election, right? So in that case, I would say that it was fair and transparent, but that doesn't mean the right-wing delegates are happy about it they did not get what they wanted in that case.
5: So has there, how how would you describe the backlash by conservatives against there being such a presence of the indigenous or women playing a role in writing the new constitution? How much, how intense has the backlash been?
6: Well, you know, I think the backlash has been a a much longer process that started, I would say from when the right was defeated during the plebiscite back uh, last year in October, because they keep having to reformulate their plan based on their new you know, uh, position and level of political capital, which has just been vanishing with every change of events. So uh, right now, their current tactic is uh, basically uh, throwing fits uh, in the convention, fighting over everything, trying to get uh, headlines by making uh, mean or racist comments about the indigenous delegates. Like, their goal is to basically turn it into a circus, so the process will lose credibility in the eyes of the public. And they are working on that full-time, 24-7. Every time there's the smallest opportunity for a scandal, they shout it from the rooftops. And that's what you have to do when you don't have the traditional type of power and representation, you know, through a democratic process.
5: So how successful have they been at that? How is the media reacting to all these claims of scandals trying to derail the Constitutional Convention?
6: I mean, I think that they've been pretty successful. I mean, I think that people were already primed to be a little skeptical of any sort of uh, representative process. You know, like people want to do things for themselves. And even though many of the delegates are representing people in... I would say on a deeper level than we would expect from, say, like politicians in Congress. I think that there's still a feeling of distance between the average person and the processes of the convention. So I don't think it takes too much for people to start doubting it or to think that their time is being wasted or it's just business as usual, even when that's not the case. So I think the right wing really benefits from that kind of atmosphere of uh, mistrust.
5: You mentioned how the Mapuche flag has become a powerful symbol of the uprising uh, that shook the country in October of 2019. Why? Why is the Mapuche flag such a powerful symbol, even for those who are not Mapuche? Why isn't this just people being offended at cultural appropriation, which you often hear?
6: Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Well, I think, um, I don't know if I know 100% of the answer to that, because I think it's a long story. But I would say that Historically, uh, you know, maybe the first battle of this territory was the battle against uh, colonialism, right? Between the indigenous peoples trying to protect and defend their land and uh, Spanish colonizers and then colonizers from other countries eventually. And I think maybe that's the oldest struggle this territory has. And not everyone in the country now is Mapuche, but a significant number of people are Mapuche descendants if not Mapuche themselves. So I feel like people feel a kind of a deeper connection to that history of resistance, and that um, in moments where people are rising up against something larger, you cannot forget that uh, uh, anti-colonial, pro-Indigenous history and context that we all live within.
5: So, uh, you also mentioned uh, Lancone, the president of the Constitutional Convention. How she did not take the stage alone. At her side stood Makai, Francisca, Lincolnau, a Mapuche, uh, spiritual authority, and former political prisoner who was also elected to one of the delegate seats set aside for indigenous people. Uh, they have a long history as a fierce advocate for indigenous rights and the protection of the natural environment, as ben, and it was seen as a likely candidate for the convention presidency. What were the politi- politics for which Lincolnau was imprisoned? Because I thought that might reflect upon why she was standing at the side of Lancon.
6: Yeah, that's actually a really uh, relevant point to bring up. So uh, she is a machi, which means she is a spiritual authority within Mapuche communities. Right? And she was a political prisoner because she was accused in a very famous uh, case here in Chile. I think it was uh, mid 2000s, 2000, 2013. I'm not sure about the precise dates, but basically, there has been um, armed struggle in the south of the country in traditional Mapuche territories for a long time with different periods of heightened activity. Uh, in these conflicts between um, landowners and farmers there and like Mapuche groups, not all Mapuche, but some organizations, right? Uh, there has been armed conflict. There has been a conflict between some Mapuches and the military there. And there's been a lot of like arson as a tactic, for example, burning uh, trucks or machinery belonging to some of the extractive industries there that are, you know, taking over and destroying the natural environment, which has both a concrete material impact on Uh, Mapuche people, as well as like, of course, a deep spiritual impact since they have that connection to the land. So, uh, the case was called the Luxinger Makai case. And in that case, uh, an older uh, married couple, uh, died in when their house was, um, burnt down through arson. And the case dragged on for a long time, but basically, um, Some people were implicated in that, one of them being another Machi, Machi uh, Celestino Cordova, who was found guilty as participating in it, although he continues to declare his innocence. Uh, Machi Linko now was accused extensively, but eventually was uh, not found to be guilty of participating in that. However, even though she was found innocent, in the context of the convention, some of the right-wing delegates said that she was guilty. And even though, even by the own, their own system, she was found not to be. So it's, that case has become kind of a symbol of like anti-Mapuche hatred and in like a way of saying, oh, look, uh, these indigenous people are all criminals and terrorists, and this is what they do. And it's completely outside of the context of, and history, of what that struggle has been in that region.
7: Fresh
8: towel? Oh, uh, yes. Thank you. Are you having a good night? I'm just on a date with a guy who makes me so nervous. Don't be. You look great. You want a cigarette? Calm me down a little? I don't smoke. Well, how about something stronger? What? Yeah, most of this mouthwash is like 60 proof. Um, I think I'm probably good. Spritz of perfume? You don't want him smelling this flop sweat you got going on. No, thank you. What, what the? Oh wow. That's a nice scent. Thank you. It was not cheap. hmm. Well, see ya. Oh, it was my mother's favorite. I bought it to see if she would respond to anything from the coma. Oh my God. Did it work? You know, we're, uh, we're taking it one day at a time. You
7: poor dear. Here.
8: Thank you so much, Miss.
7: Ah, oh, You know, I, I didn't know your mom was dead or something.
8: <laughs> well, if you see her, don't tell her I said that. She'd huh? kill me. What's going on, Kyle?
7: When I said I wanted to see what you do for a living, I was hoping that maybe I'd be able to do a ride-along a shadow you or something. Well, you
8: obviously can't come in here. You're a guy.
7: Well, how about I take the men's room and diversify this stuff? Diversify? Who taught you that?
8: Have you been reading men's health again?
7: Ah, come on. Why don't you just set up shop outside between the bathrooms? You can get both dudes and dudettes. There is a level of personal service
8: required for these fat donations. Right,
7: but I got a boat tie. I gotta get something to eat,
8: Kyle. Why don't you float the mop as we agree? I want to attend to the patrons of the bathroom. The mop and the out of service signs Ah, are in the utility closet over there. Five minutes to mop, five minutes to dry. Done. Welcome to the ladies room. Here.
7: Forget this. Time to diversify. Oh my gosh! Hello. Uh, wrong bathroom. So sorry. Nope. By all means, this is the right bathroom. Uh, what are you doing in here? That's ah, okay. I'm the bathroom attendant. So when you're done washing your hands, you come over to me. I give you a piece of gum. I got a spray of cologne for you. I got some finger sandwiches. I mean, I even got some hummus. Look at the spread. Okay. Can you leave? Now, you see, this is a gender-diversified bathroom. Uh, yeah, so okay. basically... It, okay, cool. Hey, uh, yeah, all right, I got my first customer. Get this ready here. Got the carrots. <laughs> Get the well, hello there, Capitan. Uh, yeah, no, I just, I just gotta use the sink. Having a rough night?
5: <sighs> you, you could say that.
7: Oh, you're looking sharp there, Cap.
5: Yeah, there's this girl I'm on, I'm on a
7: date with, and I, I think I like her and I'm trying to figure out how to tell her and I don't know what she's going to say. Take a minute. Have a smoke. Calm down. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I just need a minute. This'll do it. Ah. Kyle, what are you doing? Why is the men's room
8: out of service? This
7: is a gender-diversified co-ed bathroom.
8: This is not a good idea.
7: Why are you so backwards thinking, Jess? Yeah.
8: This particular toilet is not legally equipped for co-ed occupancy and I don't think we as extra-legal Restroom attendants, get to make that call.
7: There a party out here. Yeah, grab a sandwich. L- Laura? James?
9: Did did you
8: That was you? I you were talking about me? Uh, I think you're a babe. <laughs> I I really like you. Ugh. Thank God there's plenty of places to barf in here. What a sappy moment. Let's get out of this bathroom. Thanks for the smoke. I can't believe it. Yeah,
7: I know we should have got a bigger tip.
8: No, I can't believe that girl didn't wash her hands.
10: This week on The Biden Files, Biden imposes a far-reaching vaccine mandate on American workers, major storms cause chaos in America, the U.S. sues Texas over its new abortion law. America sees its 40 millionth case of COVID as deaths start to rocket back up. Brazil descends into chaos, and Biden's approval rating slump to new lows. These are The Biden Files. Day 227, September 3rd. At least 43 are dead after Hurricane Ida dumped thousands of gallons of water on New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania and Connecticut. At least 150,000 homes were left without power. States of emergency remained in effect across that region. The storm, which plowed into Louisiana, shutting down New Orleans, and then traveled through the heart of the Mid-Atlantic, is being seen as a major harbinger of climate change. Speaking from the White House, President Biden declared a disaster and added that climate change was now one of the great challenges of our time. Biden subsequently asked Congress for $30 billion to address urgent extreme weather recovery efforts and help fund the resettlement of tens of thousands of Afghan citizens. The White House asked for $24 billion in funding to help recovery efforts for wildfires and hurricanes, $6.4 billion for Afghan refugee aid as part of the short-term budgetary request to Congress to keep the government running from September 30th. The American economy added just 235,000 jobs in August, far weaker than expected growth. The economy had added roughly 1 million jobs in both June and July. Biden called the economic recovery strong, but blamed the impact of the Delta variant for the sluggish growth of American jobs. President Biden denounced Texas's new abortion law, calling it almost un-American and saying the ban creates a vigilante system because it empowers private citizens to police that ban. The House plans to take up the Women's Health Protection Act when lawmakers return on September 20th, which would establish the legal right to abortion nationwide and prevent states from putting medically unnecessary restrictions on the procedures. The bill faces steep odds of package in the Senate. The United Nations Human Rights Group also condemned the Texas anti-abortion law, calling it structural sex and gender-based discrimination at its worst. A new data dump of more than 22,000 emails, texts and documents reveals how involved Trump's closest allies have been with the attempt to recount votes in Arizona. The communiques, which a federal court has forced the Arizona Senate to release, suggest that Trump wanted to fund the recount and that conspiracy theorists involved in the recount worried about threats from Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Workers on the audit were paid the eye-watering amount of $125 an hour. The findings of that recount have yet to be released. West Virginia Democratic critical swing vote Joe Manchin demanded that his fellow Democrats pause on advancing Biden's $3.5 trillion tax and spending package, saying a significantly smaller plan is needed because of rising inflation, soaring federal debt, and the pandemic. Manchin said he will not agree to the $3.5 trillion plan or anywhere near that level of additional spending. Chuck Schumer rejected Manchin's call saying, quote, we're moving full speed ahead. Manchin, meanwhile, privately warned the White House and leaders that he'll only support about $1.5 trillion of the plan. House leaders have already set a September 15th deadline for the reconciliation bill with a vote planned before the end of September. Speaker Nancy Pelosi has also agreed to hold a vote on Biden's roughly $1 trillion infrastructure plan by September 27th. House liberals warn Pelosi they won't support the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill unless the Senate first approves the $3.5 trillion reconciliation proposal. Day 228, September 4th. The United States is now averaging more than 1,500 deaths a day from COVID for the first time since March. Daily death totals have more than quintupled since the start of August, though they remain well below the peak levels from last winter. Almost all of the cases are now concentrated in unvaccinated Americans. Kentucky is seeing a dire situation with close to 4,500 new cases a day. Kansas, Arizona, and Hawaii are all also seeing spikes. And Florida remains one of the hottest spots in America with close to 15,000 new cases each day. In Illinois, we saw 81 COVID outbreaks in schools. That is more than triple the number from previous weeks. The United States also surpassed more than 40 million total cases of COVID. That is a fifth of the global total. In a related story, the state of Oklahoma is reporting multiple overdoses of an antiparasitic drug falsely alleged to treat COVID in rural hospitals. The state is seeing a flurry of sicknesses tied to the off-label use of the equine drug Invermectin, which is the subject of a series of far right-wing conspiracies. Those false theories have been fed by figures such as Senator Rand Paul. Bizarrely, the vaccine against COVID, which is both safe and effective, is being discounted. Expanded unemployment benefits that kept millions afloat during the pandemic expired, cutting off assistance to some 7.5 million Americans. The abrupt end came as the Delta variant and others continued to press employment in America. The end of the aid came without objection from President Biden and his top economic advisors who have been caught in a bitter political fight over that aid. Republicans and small business owners have claimed the aid discouraged people from looking for work. President Biden ordered the declassification and release of documents related to the terror attacks on September 11th. The order directed the Justice Department and other agencies to review classified documents related to the FBI's investigation and set specific timelines for their declassified release. The files have been thought by the families of the 9-11 victims who believe they show Saudi Arabian involvement in the bombings. Day 229, September 5th. The Taliban claimed they have captured the final pocket of resistance in the province of Panjshir, raising their flag over that region last night. Resistance fighters, however, told international news services that they were still present, quote, in all strategic positions and will continue to fight. Their leader has called for a national uprising against the Taliban. Panjshir was a center of resistance when Afghanistan was under Soviet occupation in the 1980s and during the Taliban's previous period of rule between 1996 and 2001. The acting commissioner of the FDA and the CDC director asked the White House to scale back the COVID-19 vaccine booster plan, saying they needed more time to collect and review all the necessary data on safety and efficacy. The Pfizer process remains on track, but may need to be limited to high-risk groups, such as nursing home residents, health care workers, and people over 65. Last month, the Biden administration had recommended that people who had been vaccinated for at least eight months should get a booster starting September 20th. The House and Senate Judiciary Committees plan to hold hearings to examine Texas's six-week abortion ban and the Supreme Court procedure that allowed it to take effect. The hearing will examine the Supreme Court's use of a so-called shadow docket, a controversial expedited process for emergency actions. That shadow docket has increasingly given rise to consequential decisions without public arguments. And the Florida Department of Health changed the way it has reported COVID death data to the CDC as cases ballooned in August, giving the appearance that the pandemic was in decline. Florida death data should have shown an average of 262 daily deaths from COVID. Instead, Florida reported 46 new deaths per day over the previous seven days. Day 230, September 6. There is chaos in Brazil as thousands of diehard followers of Trumpist President Jair Bolsonaro converge on Brazil's political and economic capitals. The hard-right populist is planning to address packed Independence Day rallies in Brasilia and Sao Paulo. Bolsonaro's approval ratings have plummeted as corruption allegations have swirled amid a COVID outbreak that has killed nearly 600,000 Brazilians. Polls suggest deep dissatisfaction with Bolsonaro. His once jailed nemesis Lula is now planning to run against him, but there are also fears that Bolsonaro is attempting to mobilize the military to stage a coup. Brazil was ruled by a junta for nearly 20 years. Jason Miller, a senior advisor to Trump, said he was briefly detained and questioned by Brazilian authorities. Miller, who was also the chief executive of the social media site Getter, said that he and other members of his party were questioned for three hours at the airport in Brasilia after having attended a CPAC Brazil conference. His detention came on the same day that tens of thousands of people rallied in support of the embattled Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, with whom Miller met during his visit. Missouri's Second Amendment Preservation Act is to face a federal challenge from the Department of Justice. The law, which claims that state firearm laws exceed the federal government's power to track, register, and regulate guns and gun owners, appears to be a clear-cut violation of the Constitution's Supremacy Clause, which prohibits states from passing laws that nullify federal statutes. The Justice Department has already filed an affidavit supporting an effort by the city and county of St. Louis to strike down the law in state court, saying it had already hamstrung weapons and drug investigations. The judge in that case rejected a request to keep the law from going into effect. Attorney General Merrick Garland is now considering a federal lawsuit. Day 231, September 7th. Brazil lurched closer to a constitutional crisis as tens of thousands of supporters of the embattled right-wing president Jair Bolsonaro heeded his call to turn out at rallies as he stepped up his attacks on Brazil's Supreme Court. Bolsonaro has been locked in a feud with the high court which has jailed several of the president's supporters for allegedly financing, organizing, or inciting violence or other anti-democratic acts in the nation. Bolsonaro responded with defiance, telling crowds he would no longer abide by the court rulings. He also called on the military to seize power. He said the only reason he would lose the election was if it was rigged and he would either be jailed, killed or exiled. Idaho has become the first state known to ration health care after hospitals became overwhelmed with COVID cases. The Idaho Department of Health and Welfare quietly enacted the move, warning residents they may not get the care they would normally expect if they need to be hospitalized. Idaho also has one of the lowest vaccination rates in the United States. Los Angeles became the first major school district in the U.S. to mandate coronavirus vaccines for students 12 and older who are attending class in person. With the Delta variant ripping across the country, the Board of Education voted 6 to nothing to pass that measure. The LA Unified School District is the second largest in America. The mandate would apply to 460,000 students. The Biden administration asked officials appointed to Military Academy advisory boards by Trump to resign. The 11 officials include former counselor to Trump, Kellyanne Conway, former press secretary Sean Spicer, and former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster. Biden's goal, quote, was to ensure you have nominees and people serving on those boards who are qualified to serve on them and who are aligned with our core values. Former Office of Management and Budget Director, Russell Vaught on the Naval Academy's board said he would not resign, noting that appointees usually serve for three years. However, Chris Maeger, a White House spokesman, later confirmed that all of the appointees either had resigned or had been terminated. Day 232, September 8th. The Biden administration is preparing to sue Texas over its new law banning most abortions, setting off a major federal state clash. The suit is expected to be filed tomorrow by the Justice Department. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott claimed that his new six-week abortion ban would be preliminary to, quote, eliminating all rapists from the streets of Texas. Abbott's claims came under harsh criticism over the bill he signed, which essentially outlaws abortion in Texas, including for rape and incest victims, which have drawn widespread outrage. Under the new bill, private citizens are also encouraged to snitch on people who violate the abortion ban by filing civil lawsuits against them. They are then promised a $10,000 state bounty for doing so. Attorney General Merrick Garland added the Justice Department would protect the constitutional rights of women and other persons under the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, a 1994 law that guarantees access for people seeking access to reproductive health clinics. Brazil's and autocracy continued with President Jair Bolsonaro banning social media companies from removing certain content those are his claims that the only way he'll lose next year's elections is if the vote is rigged the new social media rules appear to be the first time a national government stopped internet companies from taking down content that violates their rules bolsonaro has used social media as a megaphone to build his political movement he is now trailing badly in the polls and is following the playbook of his close ally trump and trying to undermine the legitimacy of the coming vote the biden administration is expected to push for a major increase in solar energy production going from less than 4% of the nation's electricity to 45% by 2050. That would be an enormous boost, but many environmental scientists say the transition is likely to be too slow. And a work crew in Richmond was greeted by cheers and applause as they hoisted an enormous statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee off the pedestal where he had towered over Virginia's capital city for more than a century. The Lee statue was one of America's largest monuments to the Confederacy and will now be removed to storage. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam had ordered the statue's removal last summer in the wake of protests over the killing of George Floyd. He thanked Virginians for supporting that statue's removal. Day 233, September 9th. President Biden rolled on a major vaccination initiative that will force tens of millions to get vaccinated against COVID. This includes the vast majority of federal employees who could face disciplinary measures if they refuse. Saying, our patience is wearing thin, Biden signed a pair of executive orders and issued new rules from the Department of Labor that will now require two-thirds of the American workforce to get vaccinated. That includes any business with over 100 employees, federal contractors, and health care workers in any setting that receives Medicare and Medicaid funding. The Republican National Committee immediately pledged to sue the Biden administration. The Republican governor of South Carolina, Henry McMaster, said he will fight Biden, quote, to the gates of hell. Biden appears to be on extremely strong legal ground. In his speech, he also criticized several Republican governors for ordering mobile morgues instead of encouraging vaccinations against COVID. Behind the Biden plan is the acknowledgment that Americans' refusal to get the vaccine is causing a drag on the economic recovery. Real-time gauges of restaurant visits, airline travel and other services show consumers pulled back on face-to-face spending in recent weeks. The virus threatens the recovery even though consumers and business owners are not retrenching. Administration officials also vowed the nation would not return to lockdowns or shutdowns. In Chicago, the Chicago Public Schools are reporting 89 student and 71 adult cases of COVID related to the reopening of schools. The Chicago Teachers Union immediately criticized those numbers, alleging that CPS is downplaying cases. Nationwide, the number of children admitted to the hospital with COVID has risen to the highest levels reported to date. Nearly 30,000 kids were admitted to hospitals in August alone. The Justice Department has sued Texas over a new law that prohibits nearly all abortions in that state. The DOJ is arguing that Texas law is unconstitutional because it allows the state to essentially prohibit abortion by deputizing private parties to enforce the new restrictions in order to technically comply with Supreme Court rulings that forbid such a ban. Attorney General Merrick Garland called that enforcement mechanism an unprecedented scheme whose obvious and expressly acknowledged intention is to prevent women from exercising their constitutional rights. President Biden was forced to withdraw the nomination of David Chipman to run the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. It was a stunning defeat for Biden's gun control agenda and a major victory for the gun lobby, which had campaigned for months against Chipman's nomination. Despite mass shootings this year in Atlanta, Indianapolis, San Jose, Boulder, and Chicago, the ATF has not had a permanent leader in over a decade. An internal Capitol Police memo warned of potential violence at an upcoming pro-Trump rally to support the insurrectionists who were charged in the January 6th riots. The Justice for J6 rally argues that hundreds of people charged in the insurrection are political prisoners. That rally is scheduled for September 18th outside the Capitol. 77% of Americans support Biden's decision to end the war in Afghanistan. 44% of Americans approve of the job Biden is doing as president. 51% disapprove. Only Trump and Gerald Ford had lower approval ratings at this point in their presidencies. These are The Biden Files.
0: We're thrilled to debut a brand new song from Kerosene Stars, part of a double-A-sided single. This is... Law of Resistance.
2: complete
9: now playing eureka cast now inspire curiosity imagine science there are many many automated ai ceos out there tech brothers laboratories we've never had a ceo we never considered a ceo but we just started and we found some success experimenting with automated ceos and you know how i know that it's a success how's that that nothing has changed it says we've been doing everything right from the get-go. But it took us time with this automated CEO to realize that. Um, and the thing is, there are, as I said, tons of automated CEOs that you know or don't know. Um, so there, there are many public ones, of course. So the ones that you've heard of, um, especially in the in sort of the Chicagoland area, um, you have the, the company DeKalb Siting Indoors. Hmm. They have an automated CEO. DeKalb Hardware they also have a an automated CEO. Hmm. DeKalb Realty. Their CEO, completely AI. And then finally, Sweet ICE. Oh. The best Italian ice in DeKalb. Their hmm. CEO is also an AI. And and their decisions and, and their business is booming based on these decisions being made by AI. Truly inspiring. Now, so there's that. Many of the CEOs. That are automated um, in companies uh, that you will not know. So they're they're the publicly available ones, but there are also some that are hidden, and they're hidden for a variety of reasons. A lot of time, it is uh, a sort of um, you know a, a for the betterment of, of their of their appearance in the media. Well, it's certainly a disruptive concept. You know, it, it perhaps in some individuals there would be a. A depersonalization a sense exactly. of being at the whims of some sort of master ai which right. t- to be fair is kind of what is occurring but right. it, it, one should accept that yeah it, it's it's making better decisions no matter whether your business is family oriented or, or personalized and that's what we're seeing a lot of these organizations that have automated ceos they're afraid of admitting it because you know They they say that they say to their members they say to their their the people that use their services that they're just part of the family, Um, and and they're and they're able to do that they're able to hide that so well thanks to some boilerplate AI augmentations um, that are being called the Buffett Zuck model.
2: Eureka cast now
0: broadcasting Saturdays eight to nine p.m. on Lumpen Radio and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Schellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Schellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.